Hello everyone, welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum, where you will hear about car news, car culture, and car talks. Here's your host, Cody Wagner. Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast. It is, at the time of this recording, it's early for me, it's 8, good grief. And we have a special guest, Dana Meekum from Meekum Auctions. How are you doing, man? Good this morning, Cody. So let's just kick off with the question, why did you start Meekum Auctions? Uh, you know, it, there wasn't a business plan in the beginning, Cody, is, uh, I had some cars and, uh, I had traded a bunch of trucks for 40 cars and so I decided to have a collector car auction and I invited other people. Uh, at the end of the auction we got hit by a storm and it did a lot of damage and blew the tents down and so forth, didn't damage any cars. But a year later, we were still negotiating with people about the damaged tent and furnitures and so on and so forth. So I said to my wife, well, we might as well do this again. There wasn't a business plan at the beginning. Uh, after we started a few years later, because it was before the age of computers and we did everything by hand, the customers that would come to our auctions went to several auctions a year. So when we were working, our employees were behind the thoughts and the things going on with the customers. So that's why we started a second auction, just so we had more experience. Wow. That's a startup story if I've ever heard one. <laughs> yeah. So I've had, I've had this question for a, a little while, but how does Meekum compare to Barrett-Jackson? Well, there is no comparison. And at the same time, if you ask them, they would probably say the same thing, that there is no comparison. But after you get past ownership and promoters saying that, it's really a simple thing. You know, Meekum is more family-orientated and Barrett-Jackson's party-orientated. Meekum is a piece of business where you're allowed to put a reserve on it so you're in control of your own destiny. Uh, Barrett-Jackson is no reserve in most parts, so it's more like a casino. Some people win big at Barrett-Jackson, and you don't hear about the people that lost. When we have a successful auction selling cars at reserve, we sell about 70%. I'd be willing to venture if you did a survey of all the Barrett-Jackson customers when they have a successful auction and sell everything no reserve, 60 or 70% of the people are probably happy. There's 30% that sold their cars that are not happy. So the big difference is those people that didn't sell their cars with us didn't lose money. They still go home with their car. Hmm. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. Didn't know Barrett-Jackson was no reserve. Uh, it's been no reserve for about 20 years. The last couple of years they started to accept some real high-end cars with reserve on them. Huh. Wow. I'll tell you what, though. Meekum is far easier to catch on television than Barrett-Jackson is. Well, we're on NBC Sports, which is in 100 million homes. They're on uh, Velocity, which is only in about 20 million homes. So there's quite a difference uh, in the coverage. Yeah. So what's the what's the travel like? Is the is the worst part trying to pack and unpack things when you get to a convention center or something? Well, we have a tremendous setup crew. Uh, we have nine trucks that haul equipment, and you know, those people all they have dual jobs. The first thing they do is set up all the you know all the stage and all the auction components when we need tents and so on and so forth and. Then they switch hats and do other things during the auction. You know, so the uh, uh, we're pretty much there's only a few people from the home office that go to the road shows. So it's a different crew. You know, if you work in the home office, then you go to the road, show, road shows. It gets pretty grueling. Uh, but it, but after you do it a while, you really know what a professional athlete or a professional musician feels like. You know, you're uh, you're go go go. Like uh, June has been a torrid month for us. We. The end of May, we had Indy, which was a 2,000 car auction, and 
then we had a motorcycle auction, and then we had Denver, and now we've got Portland this weekend, and uh, so it's been it's been nonstop. Uh, plus, going and seeing new clients about new collections to consign. So, the travel's been has been torrid in June. Wow, that sounds crazy. Yeah. Did, did you say ninety trucks? Nine, nine. Oh, nine. Trucks. Sorry. <laughs> That's still yeah. a lot of grief. Wow. So I was just looking at all, at all the boxes back behind the auction. I was like. Good grief. And a lot of it seemed to be for cables. Yeah. With the age of technology, there's, uh, with the technology and the TV going on, back there that monitor things on the internet and so forth all day long. Wow. Yeah, that, that was crazy. So, do you know what the most expensive non-classic you've had at an auction was? We sold a black one-of-one one La Ferrari two years ago, just a touch under $5 million in Monterey. Wow. Wow. Holy, good grief. Yeah, yeah, that's the most expensive non-classic, yeah. Yeah. When did you start, Mika, and how many cities were you originally in? Uh, Our first auction was in 1988, and originally we were only in one city, Rockford, Illinois, uh, and that's the auction that is in Indianapolis now. We moved it from Rockford to Indianapolis. So it was, I think it was going into our third year of business when we started a second auction. Wow, 1988, so getting on for some 27 years now then, right? No, this is our 31st season. Oh, oh, okay. What was the longest show you've done? Uh, Our longest show is Kissimmee in Florida each January. It lasts for 10 days. Whoa! Uh, Like this year we've had uh, 3,300 cars, Uh, or you mean the longest ongoing event, is our Spring Classic in May. It's the show we started in 1988 in Rockford, Illinois, and it has moved to Indianapolis now. I can't believe Kissimmee's 10 days, ten days though. It's 10 days long and over 3,000 cars. Wow, that's insane. I guess a lot of them are high value, too. Uh, Yeah, yep. The way we schedule things, we try to schedule things so there's days and cars for everybody, uh, something that'll fit everybody's appetite. Yeah, so... A little bit of a tougher question, but where do you see Meekum five or ten years from now? Well, it, it, it's uh, our core business is buying and selling cars. And over the years with TV and the Internet, we've used those as advertising mediums. And I see us turning into more into the entertainment business. Uh, we're the circuses of this age, and, and there's a lot of people that like to just watch. They love cars, and they like to watch. and you know, it's like going to the zoo where you'd see all the animals. There's not many places where you can go see all these different cars. And when you can go see them, it's a static display. They're just setting. Uh, people like to see them selling. They like to see the activity, and everybody's got a dream of finding one in a garage. And, and so, you know, in the next five to ten years, we've got to learn how to harvest the entertainment value. Uh, you know, as far as running a business, our core business is still the buying and selling of automobiles, but we've... We've got to learn to how to make a little money uh, off of our entertainment side of it, you know, how to sell T-shirts and hats and, you know, all the ancillary things that go along with being a successful business. Yeah, that makes sense. Who do you use to detail the cars before and, you know, after the auction? Well, during during the auction, the, the customer that brings the car, uh, people are usually pretty picky about their cars, so they bring them detailed and they detail them, detail them themselves. But during the auction, we have one of our sponsors, which is 303 Quick Wax. Uh, 
and they wipe every car down before it comes across the stage. And uh, as far as detailing them after the auction, we don't do that, you know, because the cars changed hands and it's went to a new owner. And yeah. you know, you have a you have a contract with the owner that's selling it to clean his car before it goes across the stage and so forth. And and you you really can't go detail somebody's car when it's changed order hands without their permission. So that's uh, detailing them once they've went across the block. It, that's a that's a hard one to do there. Do you guys get a lot of foreign buyers, or and uh, what cars are popular with with foreign buyers? We don't really have a lot of foreign buyers. We're pretty much uh, an American company. We get a lot of customers from Canada, but I, I consider that North America. Uh, <laughs> we, get some, we, we get we get some customers from uh, Australia. Uh, we get some, we get some customers from, uh, Sweden and Finland and so forth. Uh, but, uh, the customers we get from Europe, they like 50s American cars and they like Mustangs. Uh, their roads are smaller there, uh, so they like Mustangs because they can drive them. Yeah. I'm surprised 50s though. I, I would have suspected maybe 60s or 70s, you know, something later. Hmm. No, they love big thin cars. They, they love the memories of America in the 50s. Ah. Uh, I see all the post-war, well, really short post-war stuff. So, how do you prepare for an auction when you're, you know, there? Well, our setup team. There, there's a lot of moving parts. There's people setting up the stages. There's people checking serial numbers to get the cars in. There's people parking the cars. Uh, there's people in the office doing paperwork, so on and so forth. You know, there's sound checks on the audio. There's there's a lot of pre-auction preparation. As far as myself being prepared, uh, I've done it for so long, somebody just tells me where I'm supposed to be, and I show up. <laughs> they call, I come. <laughs> yeah. How big is the team back home, back at Indianapolis, I guess? Well, our home office is in Walworth, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. And uh, we've got about 115 people that work in the home office, and for big options, our staff grows to 350, 400 people working. Uh, a small auction, we've got 150 to 200 working. So I guess a small auction would be Portland or Denver-ish. Yeah, the uh, five, six hundred car auction is what we call small auction. It's big by most other people's standards. <laughs> I mean, it's bigger than all the cultures I've been to, so. <laughs> is it at all possible for Meekin to expand outside of the USA eventually? You know, we thought about that as long ago as 25 years ago, but we don't really have any desire to. You know, maybe we'll go have an auction in Canada. First and foremost, you know, we're pretty good anywhere in the U.S. now, but in our early years, if we went to a totally new spot, uh, it was hard to get a new business started. Every time you start a new auction, it's like starting a new business, even though you've got a big national name. Yeah. And what we have when we work in the U.S. is we've got synergy. We've got customers all over the country. And when you've already got customers and you start something new, they refer people and you know people and, and firsthand things. So, so to go, to go out of this country, it's like starting a whole new business. Uh, and the part of our business that most people don't understand are rules and different laws that we have to, yeah. I said in the U.S., every state oh, okay. has different laws and different restrictions that we have to abide by, but at least we speak the same language and we know how to write letters or, or you know, reach out to the to the state officials and, and figure out how we can work in their guidelines. And 
to go overseas to a different country and stuff, we'd just be concerned. Uh, and the other thing, our business is built around volume. We do volume. Okay. Auctions in other countries have never been built around volume. Uh, hmm. They're smaller catalog uh, auctions. We're uh, to give you a good comparison. Uh, we're American tobacco auctioneers, and a lot of other auction companies are what they call English art auctioneers. Oh, like if you go I to see. a yeah, if you go to a Gooding auction in Monterey, a Gooding auction is really an English art auction where everybody sits down and they run about a hundred cars. And everybody goes through a catalog. It's a wonderful experience. It's a wonderful auction. But we sell about a thousand cars, and our customers don't like to sit down for three or four hours at a time. They like to get up, walk, look at the cars, come back and sit down. So it's really, I think we've really got a business model that other countries wouldn't understand and wouldn't support. Yeah, it would take a little bit of while. It would take a little bit of time for that yeah. change to a for them to understand a volume-based auction. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, the, you're definitely right that the best part about the auction is going up and seeing the cars and honestly seeing what they go for because it's, it's kind of nice to have a, like a small little betting game to figure out which cars will go for what. Yeah, that's what we call practice betting. And, but, you know, if you're practice betting and watch, watching and you twitch, you might own one. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe you own this insert car here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some some of the cars went for a little bit less. Than I was at. like the there was a Nissan 280Z Turbo, and that went for thirty seven hundred. I was I was a little surprised at that. If I had bet six grand, I would have lost. Yeah, Japanese cars for the most part have never caught on as collectibles uh, to our customer base. Uh, European cars, German cars do well, Italian cars do well, British cars do well, uh, but Japanese cars, uh, and, you know, they're, if you really look at it, when the Japanese cars came to America, uh, they were in most part general transportation. They weren't sport and luxury cars. Uh, if you look at all the genres of collectibles, uh, they're, they're luxury items when they were new. They're, they're sport, either sport cars or luxury cars when they were new, so they were special when they were new before they become a collectible. And Japanese cars, when they came to these shores, uh, they were just little general transportation cars. So it's, it's, uh, there's not much in the Japanese, uh, genre that is collectible. Yeah, an early 240Z is about, man. yeah, the, yeah, the early 240Z is about it. Uh, now, you say that German cars do well, but I noticed that some of the later Mercedes, whatever the plural of Mercedes is, but some of the later Mercedes cars didn't get past 20 grand. So is, it, is there a limit to how well German cars do in terms of era? Mercedes, uh, the Porsches, uh, you know, you... you you see some 10- and 15-year-old Mercedes convertibles, and yeah. they're right on the verge. You know, there's a lot of those cars. It's a supply and demand. There's a lot of those cars on the market. And yeah. if you just want a little convertible to drive, they're, I mean, they're a bargain for a convertible to drive. But is it an investment? Uh, they're probably going to continue to go down in value, not to 
not to be stable or go up in value. Yeah, not uh, like the Beatles and yeah. the Boston. Yeah, when we started in business, a 15-year-old car was a collectible. Uh, you know, in 1988, a car from the early 70s was a collectible. Uh, today, cars last a lot longer. They're better built. When you buy a 15-year-old car today, it's on the verge of just being an old used car, not a collectible. Yeah. Now, I'd have to wonder if some of that was due in part to the oil crisis in the 70s, if people thought, oh, we'll never have big V8s and stuff again. As, as far as what, Cody? I back, don't understand back in 1988, when a 15-year-old car was considered a classic, I have to wonder if some of that was also due to the oil crisis that came uh, in the mid-70s. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's it just uh, uh, people didn't keep cars that often uh, as long back then. I started selling new cars in the 70s and for my dad, and people would trade new cars every year. Today, people keep cars for five, six, seven, eight years. So they're, they're, the life cycle of a late model or new car is a lot longer. So it really pushes back that age on what becomes, in the consumer's eyes, an old car. Uh, you know, something that's 15 years old today, you can drive up down the street and see them all over. Uh, in the late 80s, you didn't see cars on the street from the early 70s much. They had already been used up and were gone. Yeah, I'll tell you what, my dad fits that bill of changing cars. <laughs> Good grief. I mean, he has... He's, he keeps them longer now, but I don't even know what his car list is. Multiple Corvettes, uh, MR2, Celica, uh, I can't even name them all. And a few Beatles, a few Beatles. That is going to be it for today's podcast. Thanks again for joining me and uh, agreeing to be interviewed. Okay, we'll talk to you again, and we'll see you in Denver next year, Cody. Yep, see you later. Thank, thanks for coming on. Okay, okay, stay in touch. Bye. Bye. You've just listened to Cody's Car Conundrum. Be sure to join us every Sunday. You can subscribe to Cody's YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash C slash Viper for Life ACR. Be sure to get Cody's books on Amazon at www.amazon.com slash Cody dash Wagner slash E slash capital B zero one nine capital K capital X seven two capital Z eight. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Be sure to follow Cody here so you don't miss any episodes. Bye, until next time.